0: What's up, Felony Friday listeners? Before we start the show today, I wanted to let you know of a way that you can support the show and help to spread the message of liberty. You can do this by visiting IgniteLiberty.us and ordering a Make Liberty Great Again hat or shirt. That's right. We now have men's and women's shirts, Make Liberty Great Again shirts, and they are in more colors than I can even count. Visit IgniteLiberty.us and get yours today. Make sure to enter promo code LIBERTY at checkout for 10% off your order. That's IgniteLiberty.us. Thanks, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Hey guys, I just wanted to give you a quick update on some content that we discussed during this show with my guest, Regina Huffnagel. We talked about Kratom, which I've talked about on previous episodes with Jack Linton and also with Brian McWilliams. Of course, Kratom is the drug the plant that the dea was going to ban at the end of september Uh, that ban did not occur and is not scheduled to occur at any impending date the dea has started a formal comment period that is to last until december 1st 2016 so kratom was going to become a schedule 1 controlled substance september 30th And that did not happen, and it has been delayed. We are not out of the woods yet, but this is good news. With that being said, on to the show.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt.
0: Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Felony Friday Right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. For those of you new to the show, each and every week we try to find either some news stories to discuss or we find a guest, an expert in a certain area, to bring on the show to shine a light on the broken criminal justice system. And today we'll be turning our attention north of the border up to Canada and we'll be focusing in on a new law that was passed up there that legalizes prescription heroin in some cases. So before we get to talk about that story, before we get to introducing my guest for today, this is the 41st episode of Felony Friday, and that means you can find the show notes with links and notes to everything we're going to talk about at lionsofliberty.com ff41. Now, my guest today is Regina Huffnagel, and this is actually Regina's second appearance on Felony Friday. She first appeared way back on episode three. Regina was actually my first interview guest on this uh, new Felony Friday show back then, back in January of 2016, this year. And I'll encourage everyone to go back and check out that episode and listen to it to hear all of Regina's backstory on how she got working as a correctional officer for the Federal Bureau of Prisons and then transitioning in to working with LEAP, which is Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. LEAP is a nonprofit organization made up of current and former members of law enforcement. And we've actually had on a couple uh, LEAP members in the past. We had on recently Diane Goldstein to talk about the potential legalization of marijuana in California. And last week we had on Michael Wood. And of course, we talked about current events, Black Lives Matters, and gun control and things of that nature. So check out both those episodes as well. Regina, it is great to have you back on Felony Friday. Thanks for having me. As I talked about in the intro, Regina, this is your second appearance on Felony Friday, and we're happy to have you back. And your first appearance, we really did dive into your background and talked about your experiences working in the criminal justice system, working in the prison system. But for those that haven't heard that episode, could you give maybe a quick, maybe like an elevator speech? (laughs) On, I guess what happened that caused you to want to leave that line of work and then to get involved with LEAP?
1: Sure. So the quick elevator pitch is I worked for the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense for almost 15 years. And when I worked in the Receiving and Discharge Department for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, it uh, was really when I got to see the injustices in sentencing overwhelmingly when I would release and admit inmates. Uh, the ones that had the longest sentences were overwhelmingly black and to release an inmate who was serving a 10 to 15 year sentence for possession or possession with intent to distribute. And on the same day, releasing a white guy who is a child molester and he only got three years, that sort of thing became haunting. And it happens sometimes daily, definitely weekly. And so having to kind of go home with that kind of stuff every day and you can't not think about it. So with that and many other reasons, uh, I decided that the criminal justice system was not the system that I wanted to be a part of. So I actually quit in 2010. And then uh, soon following that, I found uh, law enforcement against prohibition at a symposium at Harvard University where the co-founder Jack Cole spoke. His presentation was, it really put a good perspective around everything that I had thought, but maybe really didn't understand, and I was immediately on board, and so here we are.
0: So, Regina, just to dive into that for a minute, I mean, I can't remember if I asked you about this last time or not, but your co-workers at the time when you were working as a corrections officer, were there conversations between those that, that you worked with about what was going on, about, you know, the racial profiling, about, you know, like you said, a, a child molester being set free, and, and somebody who's charged with a non crime being booked for 10 years or more?
1: Not really. We certainly did talk about how it's incredibly inappropriate and the system has got problems when someone who's a child molester is only serving three years. And we would talk about what's going on in the system that creates that situation. But it's not really discussed that there's such disparities between drug sentencing and violent crime with actual physical victims.
0: It's an interesting transition because we are going to talk about drug prohibition today. We're going to talk about not a change in drug prohibition in the United States, but in Canada. And recently, I think it was maybe, I don't know, maybe a month ago or a few weeks back, Canada announced that they were going to make a move to legalize prescription heroin. And uh, we talked about this on a previous episode of Felony Friday. We didn't really get into the details mostly because we had some questions about how it was going to be enforced and really what the law meant and how they were going to choose which individuals would be eligible to receive these prescriptions. So that's why I wanted to have you on to talk about this, to dive into it. Mm-hmm. So I think th- the first question that I would have is, how is this new law in Canada structured and who will be able to use this program?
1: So it's modeled after a Swiss heroin assisted treatment program. And the background on that really sheds a lot of light on what's going on in Canada. During the 1990s in Switzerland, uh, they had a rising opioid crisis, similar to the one that we have in the United States now. And they really made a fundamental shift in their approach to the problems that are caused by heroin addiction. And so what they decided was that they would start this heroin-assisted treatment program To qualify for that program, the user had to be at least 18 years or older, and they had to have been a daily addict, and they have to have used for at least two years. So in addition to a couple of other things, what I thought was kind of really important was that methadone treatment had to have failed. So they don't just jump right into heroin. They've already tried and failed with methadone treatments. And so, what they did was, patients could receive doses up to three times per day. They had to go into the facility and they had to be administered right there. Sometimes it was injections, sometimes it was pills, but they couldn't just get their prescription for heroin and leave. I mean, the purpose of this is that it's heroin assisted treatment. And because its treatment end goal is that. The person is no longer using this. And so they are reducing the doses as they go along. The patient tends to be in the program for about three years. Uh, Some people have been in it for much longer because that's what they need. But most people get out of the program after about three years and they have an 80% success rate.
0: Wow, 80% success rate. And that's not something you ever hear about in the United States, using heroin as a treatment, reducing dosages in order to wean someone off of heroin. Indeed, Um,
1: indeed. And so what we have here is we're now not criminalizing the heroin user for being an addict. We're treating them so that they can go back to being a functional member of society. Some of these people will actually be on heroin-assisted treatment for the rest of their lives, but they go to work, they have a job, they have families, they're upstanding members of the community, and they have an addiction that's being controlled. So some of the things that they saw as a result of implementing the program is that there was a 60% drop in felony crimes by patients. Part of it's because the patients who were using were also dealing to be able to support their habit. And so now you have twofold. Uh, Since they're not dealing, then you have other people who can't get their hands on it. So then they go into treatment. So they've seen these drastic results in use and addiction. And really important to note that no one's ever died from a heroin overdose since the program has started. So obviously, they keep a, their finger on the pulse of what's going on. These are medical professionals. They're doctors and they're nurses. They know exactly what they're doing and they're doing it quite well.
0: This is the Swiss program from the 1990s. Correct. And to this point, no one has died of an overdose. Correct. Correct. Wow.
1: And so other, you know, great things that we see, you know, things that we know that happen with intravenous needle drug use is that you have things like HIV and hepatitis, et cetera. There's been no new infections of hepatitis and HIV for the patients. And they've seen that those rates have been drastically reduced. And then also a couple of things that were reported, uh, the Lancet actually reported in 2006 that... Because of the medicalization of heroin, it's kind of tarnished the image of heroin and it's made it really unattractive for young people. And so now they're not even really that interested in using it because it doesn't have that element of what's the word I'm looking for?
0: I'm not sure what the word is, but it doesn't have the appeal where they're being told they can't have it. So, you know, people want stuff they can't have. Yeah. So, rebellion. That's
1: kind of what we do when we're young you know, we experiment with things, cigarettes, alcohol, what have you. And it's part of being a teenager. And it's part of that sort of rebellious stage that some people have more than others.
0: Absolutely. And I think you see that in the United States with alcohol with being the drinking age 21. If you compare to Europe, people start drinking alcohol when they're in their teenage years. And They don't have nearly the alcohol problems in Europe that we have in the United States because of that appeal. People want things they can't have. Kids want to go against their parents' wishes. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, that breeds alcoholism.
1: Absolutely. And so just giving some details surrounding the Swiss heroin assisted treatment program, that's what Canada has modeled theirs after. It's very similar. I was reading some of the legislation that was posted in the Canada Gazette, and it really breaks it down into sections and subsections and the analysis and the reports and everything that they took into consideration to reach this program. And it's called the Special Access Program. And so what they've had to do is in order for doctors to be able to prescribe heroin, it has to be legalized.
0: So correct me if I'm wrong, but even before you know this law was just was just drawn up or is this law passed yet? Is this officially going to be implemented? Yes. OK, so this just happened in the past few weeks. Is it true that in Canada there was a clinic that has been doing this for years and years?
1: From what I understand, the clinic has been open for a long time, and I don't know that it was that they gave the patients heroin, but that it was a safe place for those patients to go in and use heroin so that if they did end up overdosing or whatever the case may be, there were medical professionals who were there on site. And they gave them clean needles, and they really provided the safe environment that was necessary so that they could be safe while they were addicted.
0: Okay, but that clinic was sort of an inspiration, also for this law, I guess, along with along with the situation in Switzerland. Mm -hmm, Indeed, I understand. Yes. So, is this law structured the same way as Switzerland? Is it going to be more narrow, or will anyone who has, you know, maybe their treatment has failed, their methadone treatment has failed? Will they be able to get in the program to be able to to get prescription heroin? Yes,
1: again, very, very similar. And obviously, I think that the biggest change, like, I don't want to say changes, adjustments that they're going to have to make is that their their healthcare system is different than in Switzerland. In Switzerland, they have socialized healthcare. However, the heroin-assisted treatment program in Switzerland, the patient still has to pay, I think it was $700 to be in the program thus deferring the cost of the socialized healthcare. I think that Canada is going to be doing a, a similar situation, perhaps not. All of my research has not indicated that that is something that they have or have not considered. So from everything that I've read thus far, it's mostly very similar to what they're doing in Switzerland.
0: Could you see this happening with other drugs in Canada? Is there any, any other examples of something like, I don't know, someone who's addicted to cocaine? Mm. Or something like this could work as a way to wean someone off of, of a drug like that?
1: I don't actually have any information that a heroin assisted treatment program would help with that.
0: Not heroin assisted, but a different drug if you had prescription cocaine, something like that.
1: Okay, I don't have any data on that. I would venture to guess that based on all of the evidence that we have to show how harm reduction is a better treatment option than. You know, putting somebody in prison, I would venture to guess that you might actually be able to apply harm reduction to every addiction situation and probably get far better results than what we're dealing with in the United States right now, which is massive overdoses. And nobody seems to have an answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, the problem that I see with the heroin epidemic, with the drug war as a whole, And in Canada, it's sort of when you look at it at the macro level, it seems that the government is fixing a government created problem because in the first place, drug prohibition creates a need for these a demand on the black market for people who who want these drugs. Indeed. Yeah. Which on the black market it's less safe. They don't know what they're getting. It could have things in it that you know cause them to overdose. From what I hear with heroin, a lot of the times the the overdose is not actually the heroin. It's something that it's cut with or or something else. Yeah. So that's that's what's
1: going on in the United States right now. Is it's not the heroin. It's the heroin that's being cut with fentanyl and carfentanyl. And carfentanil is 10,000 times more potent than morphine. And so in the absence of a regulated market, this is indeed what's happening. When you have a regulated market, you have quality control. You know exactly what is in something. And so you know exactly what dose you're getting. When you get something out of the illicit market, there's no quality control. And so that's where we're seeing these massive overdose situations in the United States right now. When they're testing the heroin that's being used when they use the Narcan to revive these people, they're having to use four and five times more Narcan than what they would normally use because the fentanyl and the carfentanyl is so powerful.
0: So just uh, excuse my ignorance, but what is fentanyl and, and what is carfentanyl? I'm not familiar with, so, with those.
1: So people who use prescription opioids, such as OxyContin, once oxycontin becomes not powerful enough they'll put them on a, a fentanyl patch so it's basically just a super concentrated version of the oxycontin this is sort of like a sort of a good breakdown of how that works so you'll see veterans who wear fentanyl patches because that's basically the strongest painkiller that they can possibly get prescribed for them by the VA and car fentanyl, from what I understand, is supposed to be used in veterinary settings for things like horses. That's why it's 10,000 times more powerful than morphine. So where they're getting their hands on this is anybody's guess, because once again, that's an example of how the illicit market creates these situations. And so there was, I think it was North Carolina or South Carolina, in one night, they had like 27 overdoses, um, and they tested all of them, and the test came out positive for fentanyl and carfentanil.
0: That's incredible. And, you know, with this heroin epidemic, I'm sure you're familiar with the DEA's move to schedule the plant mm-hmm. or, or the drug, whatever you want to call it, Kratom. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, they're, they're still going through with it. And at the end of September, beginning of October, it's going to be effectively banned. It's going to be schedule one, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. And is that something that, I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. This is something that I guess people have used in the past they they've used kratom in order to wean themselves off of mm-hmm. off of heroin. Are you familiar with
1: that? A little bit. I was actually reading an article. So two things is the fastest growing demographic of people in the United States who are becoming a- addicted to opioids and overdosing on opioids are is white women. Essentially, you're looking at a bunch of soccer moms who have a prescription because you know, maybe they have rheumatoid arthritis. Or whatever it is that they have, and they've become addicted to these opioids, and when their prescription gets cut off, they have no choice but to turn to street heroin. And so that was the article that I was reading, which in complement to that, the woman who started the – it's like the Kratom Foundation – She has some sort of systemic pain issue, and she is leading the charge against this because she was addicted to opioids. And as a result of finding Kratom, she was able to get off all of those, and she was able to manage her pain. Shockingly enough, she's a white soccer mom.
0: (laughs) Yeah it's really a crazy thing. Two people that I know very well, I had one of them came on the podcast in episode 39 to talk about, he said chronic back pain since he was a little kid. It's something he was born with. The the vertebra in his back aren't aligned right. And at the end of the day, if he works all day, his back is just in severe pain, but he's been able to self-medicate himself with Kratom. I know a couple people that have been able to, and they're in a situation right now where it's not going to be available and um, they're going to be, Maybe, unfortunately, I hope not. They might be forced to go to a doctor and get some form of opiate prescribed to them, sure. which is just—it's not a path you want to see people going to. No.
1: And so the good news is is that even if they do schedule kratom, kratom—I don't even know how you were actually going to say
0: Neither it. Do I've <laughs> said both. I'm not sure.
1: The good news is is that we do have uh, medical marijuana legislation that is in so many states. Um, we have legalization in so many states that are on the upcoming ballot initiatives for November. And so while I think it would be incredibly fortunate to remove Kratom from the hands of those who truly do need it, there could you know potentially be coming up for them an alternative that's very similar that would be plant-based with all of the information that's coming out about marijuana these days in terms of the efficacy of what it can treat and how it can treat it and why you know, it could be a, a potential replacement. One of my very good friends, uh, he's a war injured veteran. Uh, His bottom five vertebrae are fused to his sacrum. He walks with a cane. He's in chronic constant pain. He was on 57 different prescription medications from the VA, including a fentanyl patch. And he was suicidal. And he was able to come off of all of his medication and eliminate all of his pain by using medical marijuana. So if the worst case scenario happens and Kratom does end up on the schedule, thanks to the 10th Amendment, hopefully most states will continue to pass legislation that's going to give people better access to medical marijuana and they can just trade one for the other, hopefully.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, just one last question for you, and it does have to do with marijuana, medical marijuana, legalizing recreational marijuana. If you had to look into your crystal ball, and obviously you were just saying that more and more states are are legalizing both, either medical or recreational. Do you see a point in time, maybe two years, five years, 10 years from now, where marijuana is legalized at the federal level? Or do you think it's just going to be a, a state-by-state thing for who knows how long?
1: I think it'll probably be a state by state thing for a little while. And then eventually, it's going to have to come off the schedule one. What I'm seeing overwhelmingly, because I'm so active here in Massachusetts, and because it is on the ballot for November, I have been exposed to so many people who are activists. And these are not junkies. These are not people who do not present well. These are people who use medical marijuana every day, who are getting in front of the district attorney, who are getting in front of the mayor, who are getting in front of the governor, all three of whom, P.S., are staunchly against medical, uh, not medical marijuana, but legalizing marijuana. They've, degraded into such ridiculous reefer madness arguments that it's pretty laughable. And so what I'm seeing with all of these activists is that because they make such great representation for legalizing marijuana, because for example, We only have the medical marijuana program here in Massachusetts and also because it's legal to possess for an ounce or less. Unfortunately, though, simple economics says that when the supply is low and the demand is high, it becomes very expensive. And so our medical marijuana program here is pretty woefully inadequate. We really only have 10 dispensaries, which means there are some people who their round trip to get their medicine is four hours. Nobody's got that kind of time. And so if we legalize marijuana... For recreational use, then you increase the amount that's in the market and thus the price goes down. So not only are they now not driving four hours to get their medicine, they're also not spending between $400 and $800 a month for their medicine, because now they have easier access.
0: Unfortunately, as you know, the the government's not looking at it from an efficiency model or even something that makes economic sense. They're looking at it just as a way to to hold an office, a a way to campaign, a way to keep their power, unfortunately. I got to tell
1: you, I love it because these people are really showing how inadequate they are at their jobs because at the very least, for people such as myself who don't use marijuana, I see it from the standpoint that prohibition doesn't stop anybody from doing anything. It just creates violence, it creates cartels, and it creates corruption in every level of government. And then it puts basically innocent people in jail at alarming rates. And so from my perspective, so many other people see that prohibition does not work. I mean, if you pay attention to any of the articles that are being posted in, say, the Boston Herald or the Boston Globe... I am so encouraged by the comments that people are making on these articles online to say, this is absolutely stupid that we continue this. This creates crime. It creates cartels we need to stop the madness. And these are people who Mm -hmm. simply because they recognize that prohibition doesn't work, they will vote to legalize marijuana. So maybe that's just because it's my bubble that I'm in right now that I'm so optimistic about it. But I do see that this is definitely a wave that's coming across the nation. We see legalization and medical marijuana happening all the time in states. So I think it'll probably continue. I think this garbage essentially will probably be over in less than two years.
0: Yeah, I think change is coming, too. And and a lot of people don't really notice it when they see it. But a lot of, obviously, what Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. the situation where they're coming from, that is caused to a large part that is caused by drug prohibition. Mm. And, you know, if you would legalize drugs, legalize marijuana... A lot of those arrests, a lot of that policing for revenue is going to stop. No,
1: absolutely. Most-
0: a lot of that racial profiling in, in inner cities is going to stop. Yeah. So just by the nature of it, it would help community relations right there.
1: Yeah. So we had the um, Freedom Rally on the Boston Common. This was the 28th year for the Freedom Rally. And because we have legalization on the ballot this year, it was a big deal. And I spent two days there as a representative of LEAP. And what I noticed overwhelmingly was that the crowd was white. And I know that from 2000 to 2010 in Massachusetts, the uh, marijuana arrest rate for black citizens increased by just under 75%. And because I know that, I couldn't help but wonder if the sea of white faces was because anybody who would have potentially been there who's black is in jail or they're in prison. And so I would really, really like to see that if marijuana is legalized across the board, suddenly we're going to start seeing a lot less black arrest rates. We're also going to see a reduction in things like poverty and kids staying in school because the war on drugs just perpetuates poverty and it perpetuates violence. And once you're in the system, it's really hard to get out. Absolutely.
0: And I I think it's interesting, Regina, that I had you on the show to talk about the specific case of heroin in Canada. And we ended up talking about Switzerland there. And we're talking about the drug war in the United States. And it's all tied together. I mean, it's all basically, it all comes back to prohibition of a substance causing these problems. And I really want to thank you for coming on the show, Regina. Could you please uh, share with the Felony Friday audience where they can learn more about LEAP, where they can learn more about what you're working on now or anything else you'd like to plug?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Our website is LEAP. And because we have got so many initiatives going on with uh, legalization of drugs, you know, pushing with heroin-assisted treatment programs, legalization of marijuana, one of the things that we ask listeners is to please go to our website. Please learn as much as you can, but also help us have these conversations with other people. We will book a speaker at a Rotary Club, at a college basically anywhere that we can get a big audience that is going to listen to us. And as drug prohibition continues to be a big problem across this nation, we ask that you reach out to us and book a speaker for whatever the case may be so we can have these conversations and help educate people because that really is what our job is. People don't realize that there's an organization of 150,000 current and former law enforcement professionals, cops, judges, attorneys, probation, parole and corrections who are against the war on drugs. And when they find that out, they really kind of get quiet because for whatever reason, law enforcement is kind of qualified to have this conversation because they've been doing it for their entire careers. They really see how detrimental it is. And that's when we really get people's attention. So we would ask that you help us get those people's attention by booking a speaker.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Regina, and thank you for all that you continue to do with Lee. Thank you, John. Another great show, another great guest. I really want to thank Regina Huffnagel for coming on Felony Friday once again. This was her second time on the show, and she did not disappoint. I learned a lot. Hopefully, you did too. You know, we talk a lot about the war on drugs on this show, and that is intentional. That's very intentional. And that's one of the reasons that I have this show, is to raise awareness about the catastrophic impacts of the war on drugs. And I did want to talk, I did want to bring Regina on the show to talk about this law, this change in Canada, in Canadian law, that's going to allow some people to get used, some heroin addicts to get used to prescription heroin to treat their addiction, hopefully to get off heroin, which has worked is proven to work as Regina talked about in Switzerland who has had a program for many years with an 80% success rate but i think the biggest takeaway here and you know it's great to talk about the utilitarian effects of legalizing drugs legalizing prescription heroin when in reality obviously as a libertarian i know many of my listeners are libertarians also uh, we look at it as self-ownership, owning your own body. The government has no right to tell you what you can and cannot put in your body. But that doesn't mean that we should just throw utilitarian arguments aside and not use them strategically to advance our cause. Because at the end of the day, looking at the situation in Canada, it's much better to have this legalized prescription heroin than to have it, it not at all. I mean, obviously, you'd rather have heroin be completely legal, all drugs be completely legal, because as we know, because we can talk about even more bad effects of the war on drugs, the, the black market effect, we talked about that last week, episode 40, with Michael Wood, we talked about the black market effects of war on drugs, how it's destroying inner cities. That stuff cannot be lost. So I think libertarians, I think we need to continue to take a two-prong approach. You do want to let people know about self-ownership. You do want to let them know that they own their body, that they have a right to ingest what they want to, no matter what the effects are on themselves, as long as they're not harming any other human beings. But at the same time, you do want to bring up these arguments and let people know about the, the program in Switzerland. You want to let them know about what's going on in Canada and any other programs that are out there. Because there is nothing wrong with taking incremental steps towards liberty. I really don't think we're going to have legalized heroin, legalized cocaine, legalized weed on a federal level tomorrow. But we'll take steps. And part of that taking steps is what they're doing right now. What's happening in the United States with marijuana. I mean, you're seeing marijuana in many states. Medical marijuana is becoming legal. Recreational marijuana, there's many ballot initiatives coming up, I think, in like six or seven states to make it legal. And it it will be taxed. And um, that's unfortunate. That's going to be taxed and sucked into the system. But it's better for marijuana to be legal. It's better to have medical marijuana than no marijuana access at all. It's not the ideal situation, but I think it's something that we need to accept and take a step forward and keep incrementally marching forward towards liberty. So thank you guys again for listening to today's show. I really, really do appreciate it. I just wanted to let you know of two ways that you can help the show. First way, if you listen on iTunes, even if you don't listen on iTunes, please go over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, leave us a comment. And if you have an iPhone, you have some Apple products, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes. If you don't have Apple, if you get your, uh, your you know, if you have an Android phone or something like that, please use Stitcher Radio or another podcatcher to subscribe to the show. It really does help us a lot. And the second thing, if you have not yet joined the Lions of Liberty forum, please do so. It's very easy. You'll probably do it in about a minute. All you do is you go on Facebook Punch "Lions of Liberty" form in the search bar at the top. It'll come up, and uh, we'll get you approved as quickly as we can. That's it for today, guys. Uh, another awesome show. I want to thank Regina Hufnagel for coming on and dropping some knowledge today. That was awesome. So thank you guys for listening. As always, this is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fire is a liberty burning.